You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 127 by Rudolf Steiner, translated by Matthew Barton, 16 lectures entitled The Mission of the New Spirit Revelation, The Pivotal Nature of the Christ Event in Earth Evolution. This is Lecture 13, entitled Faith, Love, Hope, given in Vienna on the 14th of June, 1911. It is a great pleasure to me that on my brief stop here, I can welcome you today again and speak of some anthroposophic matters. Over a year ago, we spoke at some length here about a theme of anthroposophic life and inquiry and absorbed various ideas. So it is fitting that we now touch here on a theme that is closer to our inner life, our soul and sensibility, but that also in turn points us to perspectives relating to the connection of the human being with the great worlds of the stars, with what we call the macrocosm. Today my point of departure is a saying that has accompanied us through human history and which expresses on the one hand the human yearning to come closer to our higher self, but on the other hand tells us how far short we fall of our divine self. In ancient Greece, Socrates went around teaching people, using simple concepts to point them toward virtue, to everything that concerns our human soul. Socrates, the great scholar and man of wisdom, wished to divert the gaze of his contemporaries away from outward nature. Whereas his predecessors considered what underlies great natural phenomena and sought to explain them, Socrates supposedly said, quote, What's interesting about nature, about the trees and the birds? They cannot teach us how to be better human beings. Close quote. This saying is mistaken, but at this moment I am not concerned with his mistake, but with his intent. He was one of the wisest people in the world and even paid with his life for what he sought. One of Socrates' sayings has been preserved, and it is instructive for all human souls who wish to know themselves. It concerns virtue, morality, and states that if we really knew what was right, we would act accordingly. If we deviate from morality, says Socrates, this is only because we do not yet understand or acknowledge it fully. Thus virtue can be taught, but the human heart objects that human nature is frail and often errs when it should be virtuous. Another figure who coined this idea in a form in which it lives in many hearts, and there becomes an expression of the deepest regret or apology, is Paul who said, quote, The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Close quote. Many recognize what would be virtuous action, but cannot adhere to it. This split runs through our whole human nature. We need only inscribe this saying of Paul in our souls and will have inscribed there also our ambivalent human nature. 
There is something in us that rises higher than we ourselves. Our higher human nature surpasses our lower nature. Anthroposophy teaches us to see human nature not in merely simple terms. The human soul, in our view, is threefold. Here we must recall the evolution of our planet, the former embodiments or stages it passed through, during which the human being also evolved. Our planet's first incarnation was the Saturn condition. Here the seed was laid for the human being's physical body. After a long duration of this condition, the planet dissolved and reappeared again, now as the sun, with the powers of the life ether. In this condition, the physical body then acquired the etheric or life body. Again, after a long time, the planet dissolved and reappeared, now in the moon condition. Here the astral body was added to the human physical and etheric body, and when this condition too had passed through dissolution, the earth was again embodied in the form that it now possesses. As fourth principle, the germ of the I capital was now integrated into the human being. Saturn, Sun, and Moon are a triad, the past of the earth. During this past, the human triad developed physical body, etheric body, and astral body. These are past human conditions. Our I is the present. Our future lies in what it elaborates from the lower triad, the spiritualization this achieves. As the I penetrates the astral body and learns to master it, it transforms it into spirit self, or manas. As the I penetrates the etheric body, it transforms it into life spirit, or buddhi. As it penetrates the physical body, it transforms it into spirit man, or atman. These are the upper triad, the future of the human being. Now the eye is also threefold, for the soul possesses three aspects, three fundamental powers of which it consists, that can never be sundered from it. These three powers are what we have called the sentient soul, the mind soul, and the consciousness soul. They are aspects of the individuality that gradually work their way through to consciousness. In the words of our language, we could also describe them as cleverness, individuality, and morality. In the sentient soul, we experience our inner soul nature. The astral body can be regarded as the exterior of the sentient soul. The increasingly conscious I works its way out of the mind-soul. Within these growing I-forces, the consciousness soul is experienced as the interior, the spirit-self as the exterior aspect. Is there anything that can indicate that what I have just said is true? To answer this question, we take account of what we have become through humanity's evolutionary stages. We stand midway between the past lower triad and the beacon of the soul-spiritual triad that is to come. Today, in words taken directly from life, I want to characterize this latter triad, not as I did in the book titled Theosophy, where it is set out in more academic fashion. What is it that can signify for us 
our deepest inner deficiencies when we consider our cleverness, individuality, and virtue, all striving in us that can fill us equally with bliss and disharmony. This is the triad we can call faith, hope, and love. These are the three fundamental powers of the soul that can never be taken from it. Faith. What is faith? Faith is a power of the soul of which this soul can never be entirely deprived, and it lives in each and every person. There has never been a people devoid of it, and no religion has been denied the capacity to speak of it. The longing for faith permeates the world. The soul always seeks to have something that it can cling to. If this longing for faith is not satisfied, the tormented soul will be in a bad predicament. If what it can believe in is taken from it, as happens through materialism, it is like depriving the human body of air to breathe, except that the body's suffocation happens quickly, while that of the soul takes a very long time. Often you can read proverbs such as, quote, knowledge is power, close quote, and so forth. Now, at the beginning of the Bible, we can find a singular saying that has never yet been properly valued. In reference to the tree of knowledge and eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge, we should take very literally the thought that knowledge is food, that knowledge is sustenance for the soul. The soul eats or consumes the ideas of anthroposophy. It feeds upon what it believes and only has healthy nourishment from what anthroposophy supplies it. Faith, say academics and materialists, is a perspective that we have now overcome. The modern human being says, quote, I only believe what I know. Close quote. This is an error. Faith is not a lapse into the past, for faith and knowledge are not in opposition to one another. But knowledge is mutable and cannot satisfy the need of faith in the human heart. When material science asserts that the world is composed of atoms and arose by random chance, the human heart quite rightly says, quote, I cannot believe that. I find no satisfaction in this hypothesis. Quote. And since human beings cannot believe it because they have nothing that their feelings of faith and belief can cling to, the human soul is unhealthy, and this unhealthy soul makes the body sick in turn. Nervousness develops in consequence, as we see it today, and grows ever more severe. Thus the soul works upon the body, and those who have become like this act in turn upon their surroundings, which they drag down and render unhealthy, and pass this on to their descendants. This is why humanity increasingly degenerates, and this situation will, unfortunately, grow ever worse. Materialistic science is what gives human beings, quote, stones instead of bread, close quote. The soul has no sustenance, despite the intellect being crammed with knowledge. And someone like this walks around and does not know what can sustain them. And just as when someone suffocates when deprived of air, so the human soul suffocates from lack of food, from lack of spiritual sustenance in life. Anthroposophy has arrived in the world to provide humanity with food. 
When we gather to pursue anthroposophy together, we are not like other associations that concern themselves, say, with literature, the fine arts, social problems, or such like. We do not pursue anthroposophy out of curiosity, but in order to satisfy the urge for faith, to give the soul sustenance. And for this reason we allow anthroposophic ideas, thoughts, and feelings to work upon our souls. If we now consider this in relation to the evolution of the world and humanity, we must remember that during the Earth's moon condition, the astral body was added to the human configuration. What is the nature of this astral body? It consists of forces that must always encompass something, that must always find purchase somewhere. In their effect, these forces are what we experience as faith, as the power of faith. The astral body is the very source and fount of faith. It has to be fed if it is to develop and live. The desire for sustenance is the yearning for faith. If this power of faith cannot be satisfied, if it is deprived of one thing after another that it might otherwise adhere to, the food supplied to it is poor, and then the astral body falls sick, and consequently also the physical human being. But if we find satisfaction, if our hunger is stilled by ideas, thoughts, and feelings that anthroposophy draws from truth, from the depths of world knowledge, then it has food that agrees with it and nourishes it. It is satisfied. It grows strong, healthy, and the human being himself grows healthy. For the past century or so, views have changed, as has the world itself. Roughly a hundred and thirty years ago, a person was called nervous if he was a solid fellow with strong muscles and full vigor. Nowadays, a nervous person is dissatisfied, weak and sickly, someone whose soul unhappily sees something from which it can draw nourishment. It follows from all this that we can rightly call the astral body the faith body. A second fundamental power is that of love. No one lacks this. It is always present and cannot be eradicated. If you were to think that the person who hates most strongly, the greatest egoist, has no love in them, you would be wrong. The yearning for love is always present, whether this is sexual love or love of a child or of a friend or love of something else, of work uh, or an ideal, it is always there. It cannot be torn from the soul because it is a primal power in the soul. But just as we need air to breathe, so we need the work of love, the activity of love for our soul. Egoism is its adversary its hindrance. But what does egoism do? It prevents love working outward. It invariably and always compresses it into the soul. And just as air must stream outward when we breathe, so that we do not suffocate, so love must stream outward to prevent the soul suffocating from what is so vehemently compressed within it. Or rather, the soul would otherwise be consumed by its own fire of life within it and would be destroyed. Let us now recall that on old sun, the human being acquired the germ or rudiments of the etheric body. 
that this fiery, shining brilliance of the sun is the matrix of the etheric body. This reveals only another aspect of love, love in the spirit. Light is love. In the etheric body, therefore, we are endowed with love and the longing for love, and we can rightly and truly call the etheric body the love body, light and love. It truly can be said that love is the highest good, but it can also have the most disastrous consequences. We see this in daily life, and I will recount an instance from actual experience. A mother loved her little daughter very much, and out of love she let her do everything she wished. She never punished her, fulfilled her every whim. And this little daughter became a toxic character, and this was because of love. Love has to be paired with wisdom. It must be illumined love, and only then can it really work for the good. Anthroposophy is called upon to bring wisdom to bear on love, to endow it with this illumination. And if we absorb and assimilate what is said and taught here about world evolution, about matters seemingly so remote, about the human being's connection with the macrocosm, then people will regard their fellow human beings with an illumined love, will gain insight into them, will be able to understand them, and so their love will become illumined love of others. We often hear it said that life is arid and empty. This feeling about life spreads a kind of unease that extends even into the body. It is the unsatisfied power of love that causes this, If the world repudiates our love, we feel pain. If we do something out of love, we have to do it because the soul needs this, in the same way our lungs need air. Anthroposophy has arrived in the world not to satisfy academic curiosity or to present a theoretical view of things to the world. We have more than enough of such views, and still thousands of real issues await a solution but to bring humanity fulfillment in life. As yet we still meet in small circles, but these circles will soon grow ever larger, and eventually we will be able to resolve the thousands of pressing questions that beset us today. Who will solve our social problems? Those who debate them in theoretical terms? No, never. The anthroposophic outlook and love will solve them. And however paradoxical this may sound, humanity will soon not even be able to cultivate potatoes, potato quality is getting worse and worse, without anthroposophy. How can this be? Today humanity does many things instinctively, but such instincts will increasingly fade. Why? Because a time has now come when instinct must become conscious. And because of this, people will not know how to grow crops anymore without acquainting themselves with anthroposophic truths about the nature of the soil, the forces active in it, and so on. The third fundamental power of the soul is hope. The human soul must hope. Everyone knows this. There are many dissatisfied people who go searching through the world, and all too often we can meet those to whom all seems empty, whom nothing satisfies through whose fingers life seems to keep draining away. They say that everything is dark around them. They have no hopeful prospects. 
A great man once said that virtue without hope is the greatest crime, and eternity without hope the greatest lie. And yet the power of hope is inscribed in the soul, is an ineradicable force, and nothing can ever deprive us of it. But if humanity is not endowed with, but deprived of what it can hold fast to, so as to climb aloft, the souls thus robbed will lose their certainty, their support, their stability. People will collapse in uncertainty, becoming dull-witted and senseless. The fundamental anthroposophic teachings of karma and reincarnation satisfy the human soul's power of hope. They offer something lasting, something that leads into the future. What is the value of any action or thought that is conceived without reference to the human being? Human beings and their deeds, human beings and their thoughts belong together, and it is illogical to regard an evil deed, say an insult, as being expiated if the person who did this does not themselves redress it. The law of cause and effect tells us that human life is bound up with the human being who passes from incarnation to incarnation. Lessing left us his book titled The Education of the Human Race as summation of his whole life's work. The thought in which this book culminates is that we repeatedly return. Great minds, geniuses such as Lessing, thought nothing less than that the human soul develops onward from stage to stage and that it continually re-experiences what it has caused. It will not be long before the teachings of reincarnation and karma are also acknowledged by outer science. And then humanity will receive something that materialistic science denied it, and that is hope. Why do we understand the nature of past cultural epochs? Neither literature nor the history of art teach us the essence of what the Greeks left us. Neither of them have much to say about it, and it's not even necessary to know these academic things. We possess the achievements of ancient Greek culture simply because we ourselves were alive then, because we experienced this epoch of culture, and we could not be what we are today if we had not lived through those times. Hebel left behind notes that he was no longer able to shape in dramatic form. He describes a teacher discussing Plato with his students. The reincarnated Plato is one of these students and earns one bad mark after another from his teacher, is even punished because he, Plato, does not understand. Plato. Here again the soul of a genius gives expression to the idea of reincarnation. If the fruits of virtue did not depend on humankind, what would virtue be worth? How could evil be redressed if human beings themselves did not redress it? Lies would remain eternal if human beings themselves did not share in eternity, if their lies no longer concern them. It is our continuing existence through many incarnations that constitutes hope. And only because of this can souls who are poor in hope, who cannot yet quench their thirst for hope, become sound again. On old Saturn, The seed of the physical human being was laid down. How? It was implanted spiritually in what must live on. 
in hope. For this reason, the physical body can rightly be called the hope body. The physical body's nature and property is its density. As the waves of soul life keep beating upon the shore of the human body, continually and increasingly penetrating it, it becomes permeated by hope, by the certainty that something will evolve from it that lasts eternally, that is imperishable. This longing for hope's satisfaction, for continuing existence, is a consequence of the soul's power of hope, and outward science deprives it of the nourishment it needs. Anthroposophy, its ideas, thoughts, and feelings, give it hope again. And that is the great mission of Anthroposophy, to strengthen our faith, give us happiness in love, and enduring existence in hope. If we take the truths that Anthroposophy conveys to us, and if we nourish the soul's power of faith with them, then manas will develop by itself. The transformation of the astral body into manas will occur by itself. If we take these truths and nourish love with them, buddhi will arise by itself. If we take these truths and nourish hope with them, spirit man, atman, will develop by itself. This alone is why we work to cultivate anthroposophy and not to satisfy theoretical curiosity. It is wrong to say there is no need to know all these things. That is a comfort-loving stance. Anthroposophic truths are drawn from the great universe, and they serve the human soul as living food, like bread, like the air we breathe. If we and humanity are not to suffocate, if humanity is to fulfill its mission, it needs this nourishment, now especially. It is urgently needed. That is the purpose of anthroposophic study, and not the quest for knowledge in itself, not curiosity, let alone other and perhaps worse impulses. The end of lecture 13